Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is October the 22nd, 2019. This is episode 2535 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Tuesday, so it's time for a Just Jack show. We're going to be talking about gardening today. I know we're heading into winter, and uh, for a lot of us, we're, uh, we're either reaching the end of our gardening season, uh, maybe we're going into some winter fall gardening or whatever, but a lot of us is over. I mean, it's done already. You've already had your first big frost or whatever, and... Uh, Uh, you just you're not you know you look into spring next year before you do this again. I think this is a great time to think about this, and I like to do shows like this this time of year. And uh, it also I like to occasionally do something that kind of feels a little bit like a throwback episode, something that's you know akin to 2008, 2009, first year, year and a half of TSP uh, when I was doing this show in the car. When I started doing this show. Um, I talked about everything I could come up with that had to do with modern survivalism. And since I think I got, I'm the person that, uh, that, that made that term a thing. I, that never, I could not find anybody using the term modern survivalist or modern survivalism in 2008 when I started this show. I, get, I coined it is what I was looking for. I get to kind of say what at least what I mean by it. And what I mean by modern survivalism is everything we can do to, to give us Uh, more stability and security when it comes to independence, self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and personal liberty in our lives. That's what I mean by we don't throw. And what I mean by modern is, yeah, it's great to know bushcraft skills. It's great to know how to make a friction fire. But we don't throw away any babies with any bathwater when it comes to modern survivalism. We want to know how to do the calculus program uh, problem with pencil and paper and, and a freaking framing square, and we want to know how to do it with an advanced calculator. We want to use every technology. We want to be able to use the ancient, but we also want to be able to use the new. That's what makes it modern survivalism. So when it comes to those things, your, your self-sufficiency, your self-reliance, and your freedom, right? To me, being able to feed yourself is as much a keystone as anything else you can come up with. I, I love guns. I love the topic of self-defense and security. I think it's incredibly important. But I have only ever been shot at once in my life, and it wasn't any fun. I never shot at anybody or killed anybody. I've had a few fights in my life that I actually had to really fight for, but you know, it's not my normal everyday thing. But I've had to feed myself pretty much every day of my life, and if I don't feed myself for very long, I'll be pretty miserable. I won't be very free, and eventually I'll get sick and die. So food was really important to me. But still, when I started talking about this, it was one thing to talk about, let's store food, let's come up with a food storage program, whatever. It's another thing to start talking about growing food. And to not just say you should do it, but get in-depth into it and start talking about gardening techniques and all. I wondered, would people, would people even dig it? Would they like it? Pun intended, I guess, dig it, right? Would they dig the gardening topics and would they dig a garden? And it turned out they did. In fact, I would say of like first year and a half, Uh, while I was doing the mobile episodes, probably the most popular type of show I did was on growing your own food in some way, shape, or form. Within that were this subset of you know rare perennials or something like that, and we talk about like Nanking cherries or something. Those were the most biggest feedback, most popular, most emails, everything. Like people loved them. So I thought today we would talk about 20, it started out being 12, but 20 plants that you should consider growing in your garden. 
And I'm going to give you the rules that these things fall under as to why you should consider them. Now, I want to be clear, too. I'm not saying that everybody should grow these 20 plants, and if you don't, you're wrong. And I'm not saying there's no plants that maybe shouldn't be on a list of plants you should consider growing that are, aren't on this list, right? We all have, there's probably something, you probably, you listen to this, you're going to come up with three or four plants. Like, I can't believe you didn't say that. That's okay. I'm not trying to make it comprehensive. They were just some things that I thought of, and this is what I look for today. Plants that a lot of people were not familiar with, never heard of, had no idea they were even something you could grow. Or plants that people know about and have a general awareness of, and maybe you can get them in a grocery store or something, but people don't really think about them. Or they don't realize something unique about why you might want them. So I didn't try to make this all stuff like my first one today is going to be something called Kronzes, also known as Chinese artichokes. That's something that probably half the people listening to me right now are going, what is that? Don't worry, I'll tell you. But, you know, the, the third plant on my list is Swiss chard. Almost everybody in the audience probably has at least heard of and probably at some point eaten Swiss chard. But maybe you never thought about why it's such an amazing vegetable for you to grow. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is WesternBotanicals.com. Western Botanicals is where I go for everything and anything herbal that I need in my life because I know it's all organically grown or wildcrafted and I know I got real people that really care about me that will help me with my customer service needs that will answer the phone in Utah, not in New Delhi. I know they'll never sell me snake oil or lie to me or mislead me and they've sponsored this show now for like nine years. So Western Botanicals is a great partner. That You want to check them out. Their website is westernbotanicals.com. Uh, they have everything from full-on herbal preparations to individual herbs that you can use to make your own, uh, the components you need to make your own herbal salves and stuff like beeswax, menthol crystals, you name it. They've got it all. And, again, it's either organically grown or wild-crafted if you can get it there. I say it this way. If it's legal and herbal in the United States, you can find it at Western Botanicals. I guess the one exception is they won't play in the CBD space. So I'd say the CBD is legal, but... Maybe, kind of, sort of, some people would say it's still, but so maybe that's still the case. You can find it all at Western Botanicals. They have this great discount program, 50 bucks a year, and you get 25% off everything they sell. That pays for itself, but guess what? If you support my show with your, the Member Support Brigade, you get that membership for free. So they're a great supporter. Check them out today, westernbotanicals.com. Next up, uh, an organization that supported me, but I've supported back a lot over the years, the Free State Project in New Hampshire. Um, this is probably the organization I've done the most to try to help in 10 years consistently of the Survival Podcast, uh, or 11 and a half years now, whatever it is. Um, I just love what they're doing so much. The concept of the Free State Project was to pick a state and get at least 20,000 people to commit to moving there, move a bunch of people there, and drag that freaking state against its will, if necessary, to the cause of liberty as much as possible. New Hampshire was chosen for a variety of reasons, and uh, if you want to know what they are and consider being part of what the Free State Project is doing, go to fsp.org forward slash join. And I really recommend you consider going to Porkfest, as in the Porky Pine Festival, not Pork Like Pigs, a Pork Fest, in June next year, if you want to hang out with some of the coolest people and have one of the greatest experiences of your life, 
camping in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. I'm going to be there speaking. Other cool people are going to be there. I just bet my buddy Vin Armani's going to be there. I bet you. I bet you Pete Mance Raymond or Peter Arcuronis, depending on whatever he's calling himself now, I bet you he's going to be there. It's going to be cool. You want to be there, too, and you want to be part of what the Free State Project is doing. Again, their website is fsp.org. If you put forward slash join on there, you can find out what makes this something that you just might want to be part of. With that, let's go ahead and uh, get into the show now. Uh, I do want to tell you guys a couple things that are really cool. Number one, if you are coming to my workshop in the fall or if you've ever been to one and you like really cool knives, there's a bidding war auction going on right now. Patrick Rorman made four badass knives. He was supposed to make one, this tricky guy, right? I commissioned him to make a, a knife called a burden trout knife for me. I've fallen in love with the burden trout pattern. Uh, I have one from another knife maker, but Patrick's my personal knife maker. I'm like, I should be carrying an empty knives burden trout knife when I'm carrying a burden trout knife. So I, I got him to make me one. He made four instead of one. I got to pick the one I wanted with a dark myrtle. Uh, actually, Honduran rosewood handle is the one I picked. Uh, he has another one that's already spoken for. He's got two that he's auctioning off, kind of in commensuration with the TSP Fall Workshop. This is the thing. Since it's kind of for the workshop, you have to have either been to a workshop, and this is a full-on one, like multi-day one, not a weekender, uh, where you do like a half-day Saturday thing. You have, to been to, you have to know what talk to the squirrel means, basically, or you're going to find out this November when you come. Um, and uh, you can bid on it. And they are both beautiful knives. And there's a post on my website, thesurvivalpodcast.com. You can just bid by commenting in the comments. Uh, and you'd already know about this if you were on the Daily Mail, so consider getting a Daily Mail. Next up, Nicole Sauce is writing up a post now. I don't have it yet, so it's not on the blog yet. But Jack's Bourbon Cooled Coffee is back. Uh, I partnered with Nicole. We came up with a bourbon cooled coffee made with Tanzanian coffee. It is amazing, amazing coffee. It is available at hollerroast.com. And uh, there'll be a blog post out about it probably tomorrow now. But I wanted you to know that it is available again. We did it as a bourbon blonde cooled initially with a blonde roast. It sounded cool. And I like blondes. And I'm married to one. And people called it the Dorothy coffee and whatever. But Nicole said, hey, I'm going to roast this to kind of a medium full roast and let you try it. And when I did, it was better. So I'm all for making things better. So it's back as a medium roast. You can have it custom roasted to whatever you want. But we recommend the medium roast. It is the best coffee I've ever drank, which is why I'm willing to put my name on it. It is amazing. You want to check it out. I just wanted you to know that. If you're coming to the workshop, by the way, you can order coffee, my coffee, or any coffee from Nicole, and she'll bring it here and save the shipping. All right, so let's get into this. I want to start out before we go into these uh, 20 plants, and i got to change it from 12 there in the show notes uh, because I did get kind of on a roll when I was listing these. Uh, I want to start out with four rules I have. Now, these are not rules like... If you don't do this, you're stupid, or the vegetable police are going to come get you, or I'm not going to like you anymore, or if you do this, you're going to go bankrupt or get thrown in jail by the vegetable police. That's not what these rules are. These are just, when I say rules, I mean ways of thinking about it. And there's four rules that I have when I consider growing something when it comes to especially like a vegetable. Uh, number one, grow what you like. I think that one is that one might be even the vegetable police come get you if you, you, know, you grow something you don't like. It doesn't make sense. 
I guess if somebody in your family likes it, it still falls under this, falls under this rule. Or if you're selling it, it falls under this rule. But if you hate tomatoes and you're growing 18 tomato plants a year and nobody in your house eats tomatoes and you're not selling tomatoes at a farmer's market, that, that's dumb. Stop doing that. So that's probably the most stringent of the four rules. Grow what you like. Do you like this thing? Number two, grow what's expensive. If you have limited growing space and you can only grow so much and there's something you like and you go to the store and it's one of the more expensive things that you buy and you can grow it, well, consider growing that because then you're saving money. Also, number three is grow what you can't buy. If you can't buy it or it's hard to find or it's rare that you find it and you like it, I mean, then you're really like, you know, hey, you grow what you can't buy. So, again, number one on my list today falls under that Kronzis. I have never seen them for sale. I've seen them for sale on TV. I don't mean like buy, you know, mail order and whatever, but I've seen like, you know, a chef show where they're going to cook a certain thing and they go to like a farmer's market and they get them. That's how I learned about them. But I have never seen them in a store around here. So if I want Kronzis, I have to buy them. Okay? Uh, so grow what you can't buy. And number four, grow what grows well for you with little effort. Grow things that grow. Now, does it have to be all four? No. Okay? In fact, if, you, if it's expensive, you can buy it. And if you can't buy it, it doesn't matter if it's expensive, right? So sometimes, though, you can't buy it often, but it's expensive when you can. So maybe it's all four. But this is my basic rules here for this. If it's at least two of these things, let's say you like it and it grows well for you with little effort. Consider it. Let's say you like it and it's expensive and maybe you got to put a little effort into getting it to grow, but you can do it. Well, consider it. If you like it and you can't buy it, you really don't have a choice. So any two of those, it grows well for you and you can't buy it. Unless you hate it, consider it, right? But if it meets three or four, grow it, you know, or at least put it on the list of things you're, wa you're wanting to grow. So that would mean you like it, it's expensive, and you can grow it with little effort. Duh. You like it and you can't buy it and you can grow it with little effort. You see where I'm going here? You like it, it grows with little effort. We already did them all. If you get three of those, it's a trifecta and it's good to go. So let's start talking about this Kronzis thing that I've been talking about. What the hell is this? Um, if you ever see somebody post a picture of like a bowl of these things on, on the Internet, it looks like some Klingons eat or something. They look like... Some kind of weird white worm or something like that. What they actually are is a tuber. And again, sometimes they're called Chinese artichokes, but they are not an artichoke or even a holanthius, which is a sunflower uh, species, is, is to my knowledge. The leaf looks like mint, but to my understanding, they're not a mint either. They're their own thing. Uh, and they are a tuber. Uh, they are white. They have a really kind of almost like a water chestnut style cross, like a water chestnut and a potato at a baby is the best way to kind of look at them. Um, they're really easy to grow. About the only thing that's worked with them is cleaning them because they have all these little nooks and crannies on them. They actually look, and I guess this is why people call them Chinese artichokes, they look like very small Jerusalem artichokes, if you've seen Jerusalem artichoke tubers, especially the ones that are kind of like tapered and, and, and wrinkly. That's, that's what they look like. When you pull them up out of the ground, you just pull up a plant and just tons of them come out of the ground. Um, 
they're something they do have some carbs in them and, and what have you, but they are you know you're not going to eat a, a, a giant bowl of these. These are going to be something that you use as an adjunct to cooking other things. When you roast them, they get kind of a nutty flavor uh, and a sweet flavor when you do that. Uh, again, super easy to grow. Uh, not the easiest thing in the world to find, but I'll spell it for you. Everything's in the show notes, so you can go look at it. But Kronsnes, so C-R-O-S-N-E-S. Again, you can also put in Chinese artichoke. I have some growing here. They were kind of shaded out. I'm going to have a dedicated space for them next year. But they survived of two years now, just like left them in the ground and they came back. Which is, I, I love plants like that. They're basically a perennial at that point. Um, but I found mine on eBay. I just went to eBay and put in Chinese artichokes. And I found a couple sellers and I picked one that had a good reputation. So uh, there are some, I think Baker Creek might sell them, um, which is a rareseeds.com org or com or whatever, but they're a little harder to find. They're one of the hardest to find of, of the items that I have for you today, but they're really interesting, and again, it's not something you're probably going to grow for a high-volume crop, but a really unique thing that you can add and have as kind of a gourmet thing to add to some of your food. Uh, they also can be eaten raw, so they can be chopped up or just even thrown whole into a salad, except you might want to cut them up to look a little le less like worms. And if you look at a picture of these things, you'll see what I mean. They look like some kind of grub or something, but they don't move. They're, they're a plant. Uh, next up today is uh, groundnut. Groundnut is probably, these are, I started out with probably the two that you're least likely to be able to just go down the store and buy, or even maybe some of you are, have never heard of. Um, groundnut, uh, for those that are listening in Europe and uh, Australia and New Zealand and all, a lot of the world refers to peanuts, as we call them here in the United States, as groundnuts, because peanuts kind of like a nut, even though it's really a legume and it grows in the ground. Uh, that is not what I mean. When I say groundnut, I'm talking about an American original plant here. This is called Apius Americana is the, uh, the Latinaic name for it. These are a little tuber. They kind of sort of look like a potato. They don't taste like one. Yeah, we're back to a kind of a water chestnut uh, type of flavor to these. Kind of a if if a if an almond and a water chestnut had a baby, maybe that's closer to what this tastes like. But a water a chestnut, an almond, and a Jerusalem artichoke had a baby. Maybe is the way to look at it. There's a lot to like about these. Number one, they're one of the tubers that, if eaten in moderation, people that are paleo, keto, etc., can really eat quite a bit of. They do have carbohydrate in them, but the primary carbohydrate in them is a fiber called inulin. And inulin is not digestible directly by the stomach and small intestine. It all ends up in the large intestine. Some of it will get fermented by your gut bacteria and can release some calories in the form of short-chain fatty acids. Uh, it, but for every little tiny bit that it might affect your blood sugar going up, that inulin actually forces blood sugar from other things you eat down. It's an offset on a blood sugar and... Again, there's a little bit of protein in it, a uh, significant amount of carbohydrate, most of carbohydrate in the form of uh, fiber, but they taste really good roasted. They get a really sweet, nutty flavor when they're roasted. You can eat them raw. Uh, they, they, they probably taste better peeled, but you don't have to peel them. You just want to clean them really good. Uh, they, these are something that was a commercial crop in the United States when people first started settling the United States from Europe. They were shipped back. 
there's a couple problems with them. One, the wild forms tend to be fairly small. And, of course, back then all they had was the wild forms. Uh, number two, that once you establish them, they take about two years where they produce enough to where you can harvest them every year. So there's like two years to get into production. Um, now, LSU University has done research on these. They've come up with several cultivars, and the dadgone things grow the size of anywhere between a golf ball and a baseball, the largest tubers they produce. So that solved that small issue. And if you, if you get that particular variety, I have one called Nutty Ground Nut from the LSU Project uh, that I've been growing here, and, and I've gotten some really big ones off of them, and I'm continuing to select the biggest ones for replanting. So I'm eating the little ones and planting the big ones, trying to get those genetics even stronger. Uh, LSU has actually re released a few different cultivars of them. I waited two years, two years to get my first ones. And then two years to get production where it's okay to take some out. Um, now you can get a couple of the other cultivars out of that research project. The only place I know to get them is a place called Oikos. Oikos Tree Crops is the name of the company. I'll put a link to them in the show notes today so you can find them. And they have three or four varieties out of the, uh, the LSU project. And right now, as far as I know, they have them in stock. One of the beautiful things about groundnut is that it doesn't grow deep. So when you go to harvest it, you just literally like pull back like an inch of soil with your hand, and you can see the tubers you want and take the ones you want. It will grow almost like a necklace. And it, it'll be kind of like there'll be a big one, and then a, the root will connect to another one. It's a littler one, and then a littler one, and then a whole bunch of little ones. And once those little ones are there, if you want to harvest the larger one, you just pull it out and leave little ones in the ground. And, and they'll continue to grow. You can harvest them any time of the year. You can go out in the winter when they're dormant and pull some out. You can go out uh, in the middle of summer when they're growing and pull some out. I mean, you just take them when you need them. That's what's really amazing about them. They do, they, they, there's the, the requirements they need. They do really good with mottled partial shade especially in southern climates, they need to be in a moist environment because they're not deep-rooted. If the soil dries out, they can die really, really quick. So wicking beds, well-irrigated systems with a little bit of shade, uh, aquaponic wicking beds, I have not found them to do really good in an ebb and flow bed. I'm not saying they don't. I just not, not had good luck with them. If you really want to blow them up, give them something to trellis on so they get a lot of greenery. Because what the think of it this way, those leaves are solar panels, and in this case they're collecting energy to go into the tuber. The more leaf a plant has, the more energy it can put into the tuber, the bigger the tuber can get. Next up, something that you can go get at any grocery store, Swiss chard. Now, this is why I think you should grow it. Number one, it is much easier and much more of a long-term plant than most kale species, and it's almost as good for you from a nutrition standpoint, and I think it tastes better. Than kale, so it's like kale that lasts a lot longer in your garden without going to seed on you as quick. It is a biannual, and somewhere in the second or sometimes even the third year, depending on how you treat it, it will go to seed, and you'll need to plant new stuff. But it's a long-term crop, and most of the country, if you mulch it really good, it is it is damn near perennial. It will make it through your winters. When you get up to like zone six and colder, 
It may not, but you can still grow some in a container that you bring indoors and put it back out. It, it starts really easily from seed. There's a bunch of different kinds. But to me, it's two vegetables in one because you have the stalk and you have the, and the leaf. The leaf is good raw, chopped up, baby, whatever, in salads. It's good cut up like spinach and wilted down like spinach. It's good in soups like spinach. So basically, it does everything spinach greens do, but then you have a stalk. And that stalk has kind of a really great bitterness to it. It's not a, a real harsh bitterness. So cutting those stalks up and frying them more like a celery, in, a, in, in, in not a celery you're, cu you're cooking down for a mirepoix, you know, to be just a base, but a celery that you would be cooking to leave whole and you would want like to be able to chew on it and have it be part of what you're eating. It has an amazing flavor, and it comes in a bunch of colors. You can get Ford Hork as a variety. It's bright white. You can get there's a peppermint, which is basically, it doesn't taste like peppermint, but it's, it's kind of pink and white striped. There's red, there's yellows, there's oranges. So it brings all those colors to your cooking. And once you start harvesting it, again, you're looking at a year or more of harvest off a single plant, and it takes about four to five weeks before the plant's kind of doing well enough you can start to harvest from it. That's, again, a lot out of an underappreciated plant. And yeah, you can buy it in a store, but it hits my rule. I consider it expensive. When I look at what you get for four or five bucks when you buy a bundle of Swiss chard, it looks like a lot, but really what you're getting is like four to six stalks and leaves. You bring that home, you cut those leaves up and wilt them down, and they're one person's meal. And the stalks, you know, maybe you get a little bit of cooking out of them, but you just don't get much for three to five dollars. And if you're buying organic chard, it's even more expensive. So to me, it's not expensive like caviar expensive. But relative to the quantity you're getting versus how easy it is to grow, it's expensive. I like it. And it grows well with little effort. Three of the four rules are hit. Next up, vegetable amaranth. Now, I want to be clear. This doesn't have to be a vegetable variety amaranth. I'm saying grow amaranth as a vegetable. So amaranth, of course, is an ancient grain used by Central and South American tribes as a grain for years. It's a seed. It's a very tiny seed. It's a lot of work to harvest your own grain amaranth. I've done it from different varieties. You can do it. It's so inexpensive to even buy organic amaranth grain. I don't have time for it. If I had, you know, five acres that I was cultivating into plants, maybe. You know, and I lived in rich, deep soils and everything was easy, maybe. But I don't eat that much amaranth grain to begin with. So the fact that I can go down to, like, Whole Foods and I can buy a pound of organic amaranth for three bucks, that's, I'm not going to grow it for grain. But I grow varieties, you know, like Hopi red dye, etc., of amaranth. And since it's so cheap to buy as grain, you just throw seed in all your beds and you got amaranth coming up everywhere. And the best time to eat this stuff is when it's anywhere from a couple inches to about eight inches tall. You just cut the whole plant and use it as a braising green. You know, wilt it down like spinach, what have you. The little baby amaranth. So I overplant it, and when it starts growing, ever I pull all the baby ones out, you throw the red amaranth in a salad. It looks amazing. It tastes amazing. And it's like free food. And, the, the, and I like the red because it looks good. And it's exciting, you know, food, when you when you present food to somebody, it has a lot of color, it, it attracts us, we like it. But like the, the green varieties, the plant, I'm saying the plants are green, some of the grains are like yellow and orange and stuff, but the plant's still green. 
all of those, every amaranth is edible. So you can literally go down to Whole Foods or wherever sells amaranth and buy amaranth of any kind and use it as seed. At $3 a pound, it's, I think you're talking, you know, 10,000 seeds for that or more. I've never done the math on it, but vegetable amaranth, and you can grow it year-round. I mean, in the winter, yeah, it won't grow, but you can grow it from as soon as the as soon as the soil can be worked all the way to your first heavy frost, you can grow amaranth. And if you start growing it and you let some go to seed, it will self-seed and it will start showing up. Right now I have red amaranth starting to regrow in my wicking beds that is from a couple that I let go to seed when I grew it this spring, and I haven't grown it all summer because it does get a bit hot to grow it here. So it's just, it, I'm getting a fall crop for free. No effort. So I like to eat it. You can't buy it. It's not expensive. You just can't buy. I've never seen vegetable amaranth. And I'll explain why in a second. And it grows with little or no effort. Three of the four rules. The reason you can't buy it is that it doesn't keep long. When you cut it, you got maybe a day to use it. The beauty is you can grow so much so fast, that's not a problem. Uh, I, there might be some way to keep, like if it was sitting in, like you cut it, like cut flowers and put it in water, it might keep a little bit better longer. But it it really starts to wilt really, really quickly. But p cut it and use it right away. The next one is really common. You can buy it. It's stupid cheap. So why am I suggesting you grow it? I'll explain. Green onions. Um, I have not planted green onions from seed on purpose. I've let some of my green onions go to seed, and they've self-reseeded, and then I've had onions come back up in my aquaponics beds. But in general, I just buy green onions at the grocery store, and I plant them. That's it. I just plant, but Jack, they're already grown. Yeah, they're already grown. And I used to do what everybody else does, which is you cut the tip off of them and plant the tips, and they take forever to grow that way. What I figured out is if you go buy green onions at the grocery store and you put them in your garden beds or your aquaponics beds or whatever, and you let them go a couple weeks till they start to really take off and the roots establish on them, then you can go out there and cut the top off them while they're in the ground, and then they grow back really, really fast to the point where you can't even keep up with it and you end up some of them going to seed because you just can't use enough of them. So that ends up taking a, a one-time purchase and it turns it into a 20-time use item. And I'm all about that. So they're easy to grow, and I like them. And to me, they're a thing that you can use green onion on you know, four or five or six different things you make every week without even trying. You make a stir-fry, chop some green onion up and throw it on top of it. You make a salad, chop some green onion up and throw it on top of it. You like potatoes, you make some roasted potatoes, chop some green onion up and throw it on top of it. You make a soup, chop some green onion up throw it on top of it. Do you, you see where I'm going there? You're doing a, a, a soup base, and you're out of regular onions. Use green onions instead. Chop them up, throw them in, and make your mirror paw with it. Like, green onions are just so versatile, and I don't know that they're expensive, but compared to what they cost when you take the store ones home, put them in the ground, and multiple harvest of them, they're expensive that way when you look at it like that. So you, I like them. They're sort of kind of expensive, and they grow with little or no effort. So, and I've talked a lot about doing green onions that way in aquaponics beds. And I'm going to tell you that it's amazing what happens to a green onion in an ebb and flow aquaponics bed. That's the ones that fill up and drain, fill up and drain, fill and drain, ebb and flow, same thing. But you don't need that. I wanted to be sure, like, if you have a garden with nice, beautiful soil, and especially you have, like, a kind of space in between your bigger plants that you could fit something in there but not another big plant, 
and you go get a couple bunches of green onions, and if you really want to feel better about it, buy the organic ones, and just go stick them in your garden, they'll do just fine. They will just take off and start growing, and your only challenge will be to cut them sufficiently that they don't get too big and go to seed. And when you cut them, they'll grow back. All right. Uh, next up today, Japanese eggplant. This is a plant that I think a lot of people that say they don't like eggplant should give a shot. Uh, there's a hybrid variety that comes from bonnet called Ichiban. That's a great one. Um, when I say Japanese, there's a lot of Japanese eggplants. I'm talking about the ones that grow long and skinny like a sausage. Most eggplants have some alkalinity in them that if you don't salt them first, they kind of taste like an ashtray. So if you just chop this is one of the reasons people don't think they like eggplant. They go buy or somebody gives them an eggplant, they cut it up, they cook it, and it doesn't taste good. Or they make like a baba ganoush or something out of it, and they don't salt it first. And they don't draw out that nasty flavor, and then it tastes like an ashtray. Okay, These oriental varieties, most of them anyway, the long cylindrical ones, don't need that. You can just chop them up, stir fry them, and they're good. They also can be dehydrated. They also produce a shitload. I mean, you get one healthy eggplant. I think MT Brand on Facebook, to one of the groups, posted a thing. It looked like a tree. It was an eggplant. He said, can you believe this is an eggplant? And I said, yep, because I've seen them do it. I had two that weren't doing real good because I put them in the aviary and they had the shade cloth over them. They like a lot of sun. And it's late, it's cold out, but I took the, the, the shade cloth about a month ago off of the... Uh, The aviary, they're all going, they're going crazy again, starting to produce again. So I've just that note to self: next year, plant them out in the outdoor garden beds instead of in the aviary. But Japanese eggplant tastes good, and I'm not going to say you can't buy it. I don't find it to be commonly available in groceries. And when I do find it, it's like in a Whole Foods or Central Market, and it's expensive. So it's either hard to find or expensive, and it shouldn't be. It's easy to grow. It grows with almost no effort. If you can grow a tomato, I promise you, you can grow an eggplant. I mean, if you can grow tomatoes well, you know, with blight and friggin' hornworms and all the things that affect tomatoes, I mean, you, 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 you'd have to be intellectually have like a couple brain cells repressed or specific to eggplant in some way to make you do bad things to your eggplant, like pee on it every day or something and not be able to grow an eggplant if you can grow peppers and tomatoes. So it's easy, hard to find. Tastes good, grows with little no effort. It's it's kind of hits all four because it's either expensive or hard to find, right? Uh, next up, gourds. Jack, what do I need gourds for? I'm not doing arts and crafts. Okay. Have you ever tried growing zucchini? And your zucchini plant looks really, really beautiful. And you're thinking, I'm going to have grown so much zucchini just like they talk about in the old days where I'm going to have to put it in somebody's car and you're all happy. Your zucchini blossoms start to come on. They're all males. But you, you, you look that up on, on, on YouTube or Google or whatever, and you find out that's normal. And you know your female blossoms are going to come soon, and they finally start to show up. And you're finally starting to get some zucchini, and some of your leaves on your zucchini plant start to turn yellow. And you're not sure what's going on, so you cut that yellow leaf off, and then the next leaf turns in. All of a sudden, all the leaves start turning yellow. And you find out you have a squash bug problem. They're all just sucking the life out of your leaves. And then all of a sudden... The, the leaves that still look good, you go look at that zucchini plant, and it just looks, in the middle of the day, wilted like it's dying. And you water it, and it doesn't come back. But that night when the sun goes down, it does come back. And you think, oh, it just must have been, like, the next day it's even worse. 
And then finally you find out what a vine borer is and you pull a vine open and there's these big giant white maggots that are what the Kronos look like eating the core of your zucchini plant. And next thing you know, your zucchini's dead. And you got a few zucchinis off of your plant. Wouldn't have been nice if you would have got a bunch of zucchinis. Okay, so you grow these, just about any of the gourds, but like the white flowering gourd, the bottle gourds, etc. Check to be sure, but most gourds are edible when they're little. When they get big, they get all pithy and they're not good to eat. But if you grow some bottle gourd or some white flowering gourd or some hairy gourds or something like that, you will have an endless supply through the entire season of basically a squash. Now, they're not as good for making like zucchini noodles and stuff out of as zucchini is, but you pick them young, cut them up. They don't store well either, by the way. I'm just saying uh, when they're little like that. But you get so many off of them. And the squash bugs will attack the leaves, and you'll have some leaves turn yellow and whatever. But the damn things are so vigorous, they just outgrow them. And the vines are so dense, the borers can't get into them. So gourds. And you can check for edible different varieties, but... Just consider them as your spring squash and summer squash alternative uh, and defeat the vine borers and the squash bugs. Next up, this is one of the most common crops in the south, but you can grow it in the north, and I think everybody should grow a couple of them, every, a couple plants of it every year, even if you don't eat it because it just looks cool. Burgundy okra. Okra is great. It is what it is. Some people like it. Some people don't. But the burgundy okra plant, is just a beautiful plant. It has big, beautiful yellow flowers on it like uh, green okras do. But the plant is red. The, the, the leaves are a mix of red and, and, and dark green. Uh, big red stems on it. grows huge. And it's a very good-tasting okra. Now, okra is something you have to figure out for yourself how you're going to cook it. Okra is not expensive, right? Uh, so it doesn't meet that rule, but it's... Not something you find all throughout the year. It kind of comes in big gobs and then goes away at most of your groceries. At least that's what I find. And the quality of what you can buy is usually not that good. Because it's not a high-dollar crop. It doesn't seem like a lot of effort goes into assuring quality. And when you find okra that's fresh in a store, it generally looks like it's been around a while. Because it probably has. And then I've never seen burgundy okra in a store. I've seen it at farmer's markets and niche markets, but I've never seen it at an Albertsons or a Kroger. So it's something, when you go to the burgundy, you really can't find it. It looks great in your landscape. It is If you can't grow okra, quit. Unless you live like super far north or something where your climate won't do it. If you can't grow okra, you're not suited to grow anything. It is probably the easiest, most disease-resistant, pest-free plant on the planet, and okra honestly is not much different than its wild predecessors. There's been some selection done in crimson spiralness on the green and the burgundies and stuff, but it is pretty much what it was when it was brought here. Okra got here through the slave trade. Uh, when African slaves were brought to the New World, I think everybody thinks of that picture that they show with all of them stacked in a ship. That's not how they were really transported. It was uh, an artist crude rendering of how many would fit, I think, is what that was. Uh, or that they, you know, like people ran over there and threw lassos around people's necks and just drug them over here with no, you know, nothing but a loincloth on or whatever. Um, the slave trade was, and it's not a defense of it, I'm just saying what happened was developed in Africa by Africans selling other Africans. And so 
when slaves were sold into slavery, they often did have some meager possessions with them when they were transferred. And, and some of the things that were brought to the, United, to, the, to the New World, as they were calling it at the time, now the United States, uh, from the slaves were seeds. Uh, among them, uh, a pepper known as the fish pepper, which is really popular in like the Maryland area and used in a lot of seafood, which is almost like a Tabasco with like a, a, a variegated coloring on it. Uh, but okra was one as well that was brought as part of the slave trade, and it was food that slaves grew for themselves. Uh, and as such a, a, a plant that was brought here from Africa, largely undomesticated and grown that way, what we ended up with was a very, very hardy plant that could handle just about any conditions you can dish out for it. As long as it gets enough moisture in anything approaching decent soil, it will grow. So burgundy okra. Uh, next up is watercress. This is something a lot of people think you need to have moving water to grow watercress. There is no doubt that watercress will grow better for you if you have moving water. So if you have an aquaponic system and you're not growing watercress, I don't know what's wrong with you. You should be. Um, here's where it goes on my rules before I get on to more about what you can do with it and why you want to grow it. Number one, do you like it? I do. It's got a really cool bite to it, almost like a horseradish kind of thing mixed with spinach. It's, it's interesting. There's not a lot of other things that have it. Uh, it's in the same family as nasturtiums. Um, so it's got that, that peppery bite, but it's like some things are hot and persistent, like a jalapeno. Eat a raw jalapeno. If it burns your mouth, it keeps burning your mouth for a while. Things like nasturtium families, like nasturtiums and uh, watercress, they have that heat, and then they're gone. And I, I find that to be really nice. Uh, but I like it. Is it expensive? I think it's incredibly expensive. And I'll tell you why I think it's expensive. What you'll do is you'll go buy a little plug of living watercress, which is a manufacturer's attempt to do, the, or producer's best attempt to deliver a product that doesn't suck. And it still sucks. And it'll be this little plug, and you get it at Albertsons for like $5.00. Half of it doesn't look, looks like crap when you get it. You can maybe eat a little bit of it, and then the rest of it wilts and dies. It doesn't travel well, is what I'm saying. But you can go buy, go buy the best plug you can find and stick it in the ground or stick it in an aquaponic system. It'll start growing. And then you can pick off of it and eat all you want. Or you can get seed. It comes up really great, really easy from seed. Or you can let the plug you buy go to seed, and it'll free seed. So it's expensive. Or you can't find it. Right. Sometimes you can buy it, sometimes you can't. It depends on whether or not they have it, because no one really wants to ship it commercially because it doesn't travel well. And But once you get it in the right place, if it stays moist and doesn't get too much sun in the summer, it can grow it almost year-round. I have it growing like crazy in my greenhouse in an ebb and flow bed. Um, again, aquaponics is the best place for it, but if you can get moist soil and a little bit of shade, keep it kind of cool, It grows like crazy, and it's something that you know not a lot of other things really taste like it as well. It's good in salads. It is good on sandwiches. It is great in soups and stews, and I'll tell you, for soups and stews with watercress, I find if people put them in the soup early, not only does it cook down a lot like any green will, it loses its punch of that pepperiness. My favorite thing to do with watercress with a soup is, I don't put it in the soup pot at all. When I serve the soup and you put those chopped green onions on top, throw some watercress on top of it. 
It gives like this contrast and bite. It is a micronutrient and, and macronutrient powerhouse as far macro and micro minerals, I'm sorry. Powerhouse doesn't have a lot of calories in it at all, but it's got a ton of vitamins and minerals in it. It's really something that everybody should grow because of all the reasons I just gave you. Next up, another supermarket cheap, cutting celery. What's the difference between cutting celery and celery? Well, there are celeries that you can start from seed that are considered cutting celeries that are only grown as cutting celeries. But the real difference with cutting celery and celery is celery that we buy in the store is blanched. And all that means is either with dirt being piled around it or being tied up with some kind of cordage or wrap or something, as the bunch forms, it has light block from it, and it's not allowed to, to, to break out and bunch out. Okay? And that is why it's mild in flavor. It's really light in color, and it's sweet. It's that blanching process. And that's why when you buy a celery bunch at the grocery store, Your outer stalks are darker green, tougher construction, and have more flavor as far as that hard celery flavor. And then your next inner stalks are a lighter color green. They're a little less fibrous. They have less of that celery flavor. You know I'm talking about that heavy flavor. Like if you eat celery, see that hard punch, and they're a little sweeter. And then your last layer, what they call the hearts, is the sweetest, tenderest celery. It's because it's been blocked from light. Well, if you let celery just grow like a bush, which is kind of more what it grows like than a, than a bunch, it all turns dark green like that. It's all incredibly hard. It handles frost and, and pretty heavy frost. No problem once it's hardened off. It, it, you, you can freeze it to death, but it takes a lot. I've had it growing outside in the 20s for multiple days and survive once it's dark green and hardened off. So it's a really hardy plant. But once you let it do that, it's really not good for celery you'd put cream cheese on. Now it's a cutting, cooking soup celery. So how do we get this without trying to start all those little bitty seeds that are a pain in the ass and only like 5% germinate? We go to the store, we buy celery. We don't buy it pre-cut, we buy a bunch of celery. And I don't mean a whole lot, I mean a bunch. We bring it home and instead of cutting the bottom off of it, we pull the stalks off of it and that You know, like last three or four little bitty best, I know they're the best tasting ones, but that hard on the inside, you leave it attached to the core, plant the core, water it, and it will start growing. And it will grow for about 18 months before it stands up a stalk and goes to seed. And once it does that, it gets bitter. And you can collect the seed off of it then for your spice cabinet and have celery seed that you produced. And you, some of it, when there's that much seed, will probably self-reseed and start growing from seed. So that's taking a product you bought in the grocery store and turning it into a long-term product. Now, why do we do this? Number one, when it comes to cooking with celery, that dark green pungent version that we would call a cutting celery is so much better than what you buy in the store. So you can't really buy it unless you're going to a specialty store. Since you can't buy it, it doesn't really matter that it's not expensive because you can't buy it. It's e How much easier can it be than taking the core of something you were going to throw away and stick it in the ground and let it grow? B. It's incredibly hardy, so it's easy to grow, and I find most people like it. So it's three of the four rules for you there. Next up, orich. Orich is in the uh, goosefoot family. It is another you know green, if you want to call it that, but it comes in green, it comes in orange, it comes in red. Magenta orich is probably the coolest looking one. Really, really easy to grow. Something most people are not familiar with. I have never seen orach in um, 
in, in the grocery store. I have never seen it at a farmer's market. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm saying I have never seen it. I've seen some people that do Orach microgreens. Like, I don't know if John Dowie does it or not, but like with John Dowie's micro farm, my green farm, uh, I've seen people do Orach in that because you can buy like a multicolor that's like an orange, a red, a green, etc. So they really make a cool microgreen. They grow on a fairly, you know, tall plant. Leaves get about as big as like your hand minus your fingers. So about the palm of an average man's hand. Um, it's kind of thin. It's not like a real juicy green, but it is packed with micronutrients, macro minerals and micro minerals. Uh, it's beautiful color, stupid easy to grow. Again, this is one of those things. If you can't grow it, either your climate's too hot or too cold, or you don't need to be growing things. And there's still a time of the year you can grow this anywhere in the United States, honestly, unless you're up in the tundra with permafrost. Uh, you can grow orange. Um, And it has this amazing way of setting off salads. I've never really cooked with it. I'm sure you could. It's such a thin leaf when you cook with it. It's a lot like amaranth. It cooks way, way down really, really fast. And I just find you take a, a bunch of the leaves and you stack them together like a stack of cards, especially if you grow the multiple colors, and roll it like a big cigar, like you're gonna, like you're gonna do a chiffon with uh, a, a chiffonade, is what they call it, with basil. Where you do it really, really narrow, but instead of doing it narrow, you do it in about one inch strips. And then you take that and you put that on a salad. It almost looks like colored noodles in your salad. It's very good that way with soups, but I would do the same thing I do with watercress then. Instead of putting it in the soup at the end, even do that and serve it on top of the soup and let the warmth of the soup kind of integrate it in. Uh, it's just a really great crop. Uh, most of your seed catalogs, I mean, your big ones that are all commercial, like Burpee and Parks probably don't have it. But all of your second tier, you know, your Baker Creeks, uh, Terroir Seeds, etc., um, Peaceful Valley, etc., all of those guys are going to have uh, Orach. And again, you can the burgundy is really a cool color, and then the multicolor. That also comes in green, but I would say grow some color if you're going to do it. Next up, New Zealand spinach. Um, for anybody that's zone seven or higher, you're going to probably find it'll turn into a perennial for you. It has a really big kind of prickly, it almost looks like a sandbur seed, but it's not that much of a problem. If you stepped on one barefoot, you probably wouldn't like it, but you wouldn't end up cursing and pulling it out of your foot while it holds on like it's got barbs in it. It's just kind of pointy. It doesn't have the real barbs. Um, it grows a low sprawling plant dark green leaf that's kind of goes to a point. It's triangular shaped. It is not something you would want to eat a salad of just it. By itself, it's kind of, I don't know, it's not bad tasting. It's not good tasting. It's a, It's got a little bit of kind of that okra slime to the leaf, but nowhere near like a Malabar spinach does. It's just a little tiny bit of it. It's kind of a roughage, and you're like, I don't know that I really like this. You mix it with other greens in a salad, you're like, this is great. Cooked with other mixed greens, it's fantastic. But I've never seen it for sale, so you can't buy it. So it doesn't matter that it's not expensive. You just, I've never seen it for sale. And I would say it's probably another one of those things. That one of the reasons it's not commercially available very often is it doesn't travel well. When you harvest it, you ain't got a long time before you want to use it for it. It starts to really wilt on you. Um, packed with nutrients, grows really, really easily. Self-reseeds, and a lot of, I've had it go where I'm pretty sure it didn't self-reseed. It did die back when it got hit with a hard enough frost, and it came back from the roots. 
So it's one of those things that's just going to be around a long time once you get it established. And even if it isn't, it grows really fast, so it's easy to replant every year. Uh, next up, we talked about its cousin in the same family, the nasturtium family, but nasturtiums. I'm talking about the flowers here. Um, they have that same peppery bite that watercress does, but they'll grow where watercress won't. They're a great companion plant. They attract beneficial insects and pollinators and wasps. They taste great. The flowers look really cool. The flowers taste really cool. They have that same peppery bite that watercress does. You want to wow somebody, bring them over for a fresh garden salad and put a half a dozen nasturtium blossoms onto your salad. Uh, are they expensive? John Dowie from the Microgreens Farm tells me if he could grow enough of them, he could make a killing selling them to chefs. They would have to be delivered a couple times a week because, again, they don't store well long term. I've seen people sell them. I've never seen them in a store. So unless you're going, you have like a local producer or a niche market or something, you can't buy them in enough quantity to eat. I've grown some in my wicking beds with fertile soil. The leaves get bigger than your hand with your fingers. I'm talking like small tortilla sized. And guess what I do with them? I'll take two or three of those leaves and I'll put them together and I'll make, you know, vegetable and protein wrap. I did, uh, for my buddy David one time, took some of those leaves, didn't cook them, left them out to the side so they were raw, and sauteed some helix snails, escargot snails, garlic and butter, some fresh um, garlic chives, and some pea tendrils. And so left all the veg raw, took the sautéed garlic snails, put them inside the leaf, and rolled them up like a spring roll. And you may not be hip on snails, but guys, let me tell you, that was something. There, I don't know of a restaurant in the world you could walk in and get that. And if you did, one of them would probably be in like a first course appetizer and probably be $20. And to make one, I probably had, with the snails that are kind of expensive, two bucks in one, maybe, maybe. And you could always put any other meat in that you wanted. But something kind of garlicky toward the seafood side of things, maybe even as chicken, whatever. All I would say is if you're going to use them as a wrap, uh, they are kind of a delicate leaf, so you want something that's not a tough meat or chopped finely ground. Uh, a, a minced pork like a minced pork with garlic and onion and like porcini mushroom in that with like uh, dill, oh, that would kill. And you can't buy that. So it's expensive if you can buy it. You generally can't buy it. It grows real. The only reason I don't grow them year-round here is once we get to our major heat, it's too hot here. You guys like Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, Maine, Maryland, all up in there. You guys, from the time you can start growing them till the end of the season, you can grow like just crazy amounts of them. The seeds can be used as a black pepper substitute if you can keep them around long enough to produce seed. Mine never produced seed for me. Next up, the most mundane, fastest-growing thing you can grow that nobody tends to grow because they're cheap and nobody really sees much value in them except the few people that like them, radishes. Now, I'm not talking about, like, black Spanish radish or daikon radish or any of those really cool radishes because I think daikon radishes, when they're ferment fermented, are amazing. I think they make a pretty good uh, rice noodle substitute uh, when they're seasoned right and all. But when it comes to cherry bell radishes, that you can put the seeds in the ground, the radish grows, you can pull it out of the ground 24 to 26 days, you've grown a radish. Almost no one grows them because they're cheap, because they grow that fast, and people are like, it's a radish. And I agree, I'm not a fan of radishes until I started doing keto. And I want to keep my carbs down. 
And I started researching, like, what can I put in a stew that's kind of like a potato? And somebody said to do radishes, and I thought, the hell you say. No, 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 I'm not putting a radish in a stew. That's stupid. And then I got to thinking, how do you know it's stupid? Did you ever eat one? Have you ever tasted one when it's been cooked? Does the flavor change when you cook it? And I thought to myself, does not a daikon radish that you take with a julienne peeler and turn into angel hair substitute for noodles, when you cook it, lose a lot of the bite that even is more mild than these French-style radishes, and don't they actually taste kind of like a noodle? Well, then maybe, dummy, if you try a cherry bell radish that way, it will taste like a potato. It tastes like a sort of kind of sweet little red potato, but not really somewhere like a turnip without the harsh turnip flavor. It's mild, it's sweet, and it takes in the flavor of what you cook it in. So, I now love radishes to grow because you can buy a pound of radish seed for like $2 loose at the feed store, and you can have a crop of like half a dozen of them come in almost year-round in my climate. I can buy them, and they're cheap. But they're easy to grow, and I like them. And by growing my own, I have them in the ground, and I don't, if I don't use any for a couple weeks, they don't go bad. And on top of it, they do other things for me. So I'll let some of them go to seed. When they go to seed, the flowers are a huge attractant for beneficial insects. They're actually a trap crop for some pest insects. So what that means is some of like your flea beetles and stuff like that, will, like, they like to eat radish greens. So they'll go there and they eat radishes instead of your other crops, and then they bring in the beneficials that eat them. Right? White flies, another uh, pest insect that will prefer your radishes to many things you don't want your white fly to bother. So they have that going from, and then if you let radishes of just about any kind go to seed, they'll put these little pods on. Those things are awesome. They look like little green beans with kind of a radish-like flavor. You stir-fry those, those rock. I first discovered that when I started growing daikon radish, and I was like, I wonder if all radishes do this. Turns out they do. So that's why you should grow radishes. That's a pretty good reason right there. And they're small, so you can interplant them in space that you would have planted nothing other than maybe those green onions or some garlic. So there you go. Uh, next, sea kale. Sea kale is basically a perennial kale. It is way hardier, and once you get it established, it will produce way longer than like Lanacinto and your curly kale and Russian kale and stuff like that. So if you like kale, I'm not going to say a lot about this. It tastes just like other kales, uh, but you want to consider growing sea kale. Next up, long beans. Long beans are these Asian beans that grow like anywhere from 12 inches to 36 inches long, and they're about as big around as your little finger or even smaller, like pencil diameter. Um, the reason to grow these is that they're really easy to grow. They come in a red that is awesome. They taste great. They're a low carbohydrate for paleo, primal, etc., keto, as long as you pick them before they start to form the little beans inside of them. Uh, I've never seen them for sale in a store. I'm not saying they're not there, but I've never seen them for sale in a store. They taste great. Um, once you get them going, they just grow and grow. You can... And you can let some of the, the pods go to seed, pick seed, and plant a second crop or third crop in the same year. That's how fast-growing they are. Kids like them because they're cool. They grow really, really fast. They'll trellis onto anything. You get what I'm saying? Like, they're not expensive, 
but you'll find they have less problems like a lot of your green beans and bush beans, pole beans, you have problems with like leaf rust. Uh, down here, we, we, we don't do too bad with rust. A lot of people think it's rust, but it's later in the season, a lot of our bean plants will die back, and it's a bacterial wilt that hits when you get really dry, hot weather. Now, you would think bacterial wilt's going to hit in moist and dry. That's rust and some other bean products. But there's a bacterial wilt that's really hard on bush beans in our climate that hits July. And then by the time it goes away, it's too late in the season to get another crop. These things, as long as they get the right sun and good fertility, they don't give a shit. I've never had a real problem with anything hitting them. So easy to grow, can't buy it, unique and different, cool colors, uh, easy to produce your own. Like once you buy a packet of seeds, you should never have to buy this, a packet of seeds for them ever again. So they're uh, great for saving seed from. They don't seem to cross pollinate with any of our, our our bush beans and pole beans. I've never had an issue with that. I'm sure if you had a green and a red, they they might cross pollinate. Uh, cool flower on them too. Lots of really neat insects seem to show up on them. So I don't know why you wouldn't grow them. Next up, sorrel, and I'm continuing. I'm including like garden sorrel, sheep sorrel, red vein sorrel, which is my favorite. Um, that's, they also call that bloody sorrel. Uh, just unique. I almost never see it for sale. If I do see it in the markets, when you buy like a mixed green, there'll be a couple of the little little red vein sorrel leaves in there. And the reason they do that looks so cool. It's become really popular with restaurant chefs to have a few little leaves of that blood vein sorrel on the top of a garden salad because it looks awesome. It has a kind of a really great bitter contrast flavor from some of the other greens. But it's a weed. Once you establish it, you almost can't get rid of it. And you know how you make more of it? When you get a great big clump of it early in the spring when it's not going to get any harsh weather and don't have time to adapt to what you've done to it, you pull it out of the ground and break. you just pull it apart in divisions and replant it. And it grows more. And then next year you can do it again. And next year you can do it again. And next year you can do it again. And it's one of the first plants that will show up in spring that you're able to harvest. And you don't have to plant it every year. Can't buy it. When you can, it is damn expensive. That's another one Dowie wants to grow to expand on the microgreens. That's It's, it's a, a tough nut to crack. Uh, it tastes good. It is a dynamic accumulator of, of minerals and nutrients. So it's good for you to be eating. Shows up early in the year, makes it through to late in the year. I, I don't know what else you'd want. Next up, Trombuccino uh, zucchini, also known as neck pumpkin. This is one I grow it every year. The squash bugs and vine borers combined eventually get me. Per plant, I get about five really big ones off of it. Two or three little ones, I'll eat young. I let the big ones get really, really long. I mean like a couple feet long, and they turn into a pumpkin. They turn into a like a, a pinkish orangish color and at that point they're a winter squash which means so i can use it as a summer squash until i can't get any more off of it and i let a few big ones grow i don't eat a lot of squash but what i love about these things is since they're like a neck pumpkin they have a bulb at the bottom to be about as big as a softball and there's seeds in that that entire neck that's going to be about oh about an inch and a half two inches in diameter somewhere around that is solid flesh. And you can make squash soups, you can make cube squash, whatever you want to do that you would do with like a butternut, you can do milder flavor, tastes a little bit better, better nutritional profile than butternut, 
right? Not as robust as a butternut plant from a standpoint of standing up to the vine borers, but it's a twofer because you get the summer squash and the winter squash out of it, but that big, long, solid neck. And that means that you got a large yield with a little bit of work. I dig that, and they look cool. Never seen them for sale in a grocery store. Have seen them at farmer's markets. Never seen them in a grocery store, so you can't buy it. Next one, very expensive thing used by a lot of sushi chefs, and they like to use it as a microgreen, and that is very expensive to grow a lot of it that way. Uh, perilla, also known as shiso. Uh, but you can grow this. It's, it, people think it's hard to grow because uh, you know a bunch of little bits of it is expensive. It's not hard to grow. You can grow lots of it, and it grows right through our summers. Uh, there's green and red varieties. They're good to make leaf wraps out of. They're good to cut up and sell. They're good to cook with. Uh, it is a fantastic, again, really nutrient-dense from a standpoint of micro and macro minerals and vitamins. Uh, really unique flavor. There's really nothing else quite like it. Um, I won't say much more about it. You can get seed from lots of places for it. And if you try growing it in your garden, you'd be like, gee, that's easy to grow. I didn't know that you could grow something that you know, is as expensive as buying drugs when you buy it by the ounce for a sushi chef. Um, but again, they want high-intensity grown microgreen version of it. When it comes to the full leaf size stuff, it's easy. I mean, and it goes to seed. Like once you buy seed, you don't even need to buy seed anymore in most of the country. You'll get seed every year. Uh, and lastly, um, a plant that's known for uh, actually improving longevity of people in uh, southern Japan and other areas down in Okinawa, etc. And I don't know if it really does or not, but it definitely has a great nutritional profile and is really unique. Bitter melon. And a lot of people think bitter is bad. Well, they, they, I'm going to tell you, probably half the people that try bitter melon are going to be like, nope, nope. No, 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 no. I love bitter melon. I don't want to sit down and eat a bowl of it. It's something I want to make a little bit of and have as a side dish and create that bitter contrast with your other foods. Um, it is an incredibly easy plant to grow. They kind of look like a bumpy, warty cucumber. Lots of people sell it. Um, again, the, the, the best thing you'll find it under is a trade name, I guess, or a common name, bitter melon. There's another name for it. That kind of escapes me right now as to exactly what the other name for it is. But if you look for bitter melon seeds, you'll have no trouble finding them. This is one you can occasionally get. If you go to an Asian market or something like that, you'll definitely find it in their produce section because it's very easy to grow. Uh, you don't generally find it at Kroger's and Albertsons or whatever. Maybe some of your more upscale ones in yuppie neighborhoods, you'll find it. Um, but it's, uh, if you, I would. I would tend to want to get a hold of one of these and try it before you grow it to see if you really like it. And if you like it, then grow it. And if you don't, it doesn't pass rule number one, don't grow it. And that wraps us up. So let me let me bring you to our final thoughts on this. Uh, have fun, grow stuff, and remember the four big rules. Uh, look at stuff when you're thinking about growing things. A lot of people, I, I think they go through catalogs and they find some weird thing. I'm going to grow this because it's weird. And you know what? Do one or two of those a year. That's fine. You know, because if it ends up that you think it tastes like ass, you just don't grow it again and you got to do something. It was neat and it was fun. Or it doesn't grow really well for you. Well, then you know it's too much trouble to grow or it grows like crazy, but it doesn't produce. There's some stuff that does like the, the plant grows, but the production thing just doesn't show up. Yeah, it's, it's fine to do that, but. In the end, the bulk of what you're growing, the majority of what you're growing, the things you're choosing to grow, grow what you like, grow what's expensive to buy, or grow what you can't buy, or it's hard to find, 
and then grow what grows well for you with the least amount of effort. I've found certain things just grow well here. I almost can't mess up peppers, so I grow a lot of peppers because it doesn't take any. If I if I abuse my peppers, which I'm doing right now because I'm so busy, you know, a few of the plants are looking like, hey, I hate you, prick. I'm going to die early. But like 90% of my peppers are just blowing and go. I got peppers drying on the plants now. So I'm going to grow peppers because it's easy. That's the, that's how you, people say, well, how do you grow so much? I grew everything. And then what I liked and grew well, I grew more of that. I asked the secret to success to be a happy gardener. Well, I'm going to, you know, I grow a few tomato plants every year. The blight eventually gets them when they when they're still alive, but they're just not going to do well anymore. I cut them off and make room for other things. Why am I going to frustrate myself? Like, how valuable is a tomato to me, really, compared to something like you know ground nuts that I can't even buy in a store, or a really good looking plant like burgundy okra, a really easy plant like New Zealand spinach, or watercress, or Asian long beans, or sea kale, or radishes that are like I finally have a reason for those. Like all this stuff makes sense to me. Cutting celery, just having plant, like we need some celery. I'll go get some. You know, or, or a sorrel that's going to show up early in the spring, and I've got like this, you know, my wild garlic is showing up at the same time the sorrel is, at the same time, you know, my dill's really going crazy early in the year, and I've had these amazing herb salads. This is so much better than fighting it. Figure out what's easy, what's expensive to buy or you can't find, and what you like, and grow the hell out of that. With that, we've wrapped up another episode. Hope you've enjoyed it. If you did, consider supporting us. One way to do that is do your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. I'm really big on two things that use the word proactive. One is proactive apathy. Proactive apathy is if some, I don't have any control over something, I might pay attention to it just enough to know that the part of it that will affect me how to prepare for it, but otherwise I ignore it. I don't care what Donald Trump said today because it's not actually going to affect me, and even if it does, there's nothing I can do about it. I don't care what Nancy Pelosi said today. That's proactive apathy. People say, you're just apathetic. Yes, proactively. I'm very selective at the things I choose to ignore. The other thing I like is proactive anarchy. By the way, the two go together like peanut butter and jelly. Right? But proactive anarchy to me is doing things to make your life better in spite of the fact that the state says you shouldn't. Eating a diet counter to the food pyramid is proactive anarchy. Also would be fixing the gas cans that the government screwed up. See, that's how it comes back to T-SPAS. So the government did two things to ruin gas cans. One, they removed the air vent. So if, you were, if you're old like me, you remember days where like you bought Hawaiian punch in a can, and you had a can opener that made like a triangular hole in it, and when your mom or dad opened the can of Hawaiian punch, you put a hole in one side and a small hole in the back, and that way when you poured it, it didn't go glug, glug, and gloop everywhere. Gas cans used to have a vent. And when you poured the gas out, you opened the vent, and then it could actually flow out of the damn can. The other thing they had was a nozzle that actually worked instead of had to be jammed sideways or whatever. You can fix the nozzle. But if you want your cans to pour right, you want a vent in them. Well, those little yellow vents that they used to put in gas cans, turns out you can buy them for not much money. In fact, you can buy a little card with 25 of the damn things in it for 11 bucks. And what do you do then? You take a drill, you find a thick spot in your gas can in an appropriate location, you drill a hole, I tell you exactly what drill bit to use in the, in the write-up, but a 3164th is the perfect bit. 
but a half-inch bit works too. And you take this thing and you pop it in that hole and you close it up. And when you're going to pour your gas, you open it up and your gas pours the way that it used to before the government fixed the problem that didn't exist and made gas cans unsafe and not work worth a damn. Proactive Apathy. You can find that product reviewed today at thesurvivalpodcast.com. You can find all the items I recommend at tspaz.com. And remember, whether you're fixing your gas can or doing anything, if you're going to buy something online, just go to tspaz.com before you do, and you can help support the work that we do here at the Survival Podcast. You can also become a member by joining the Member Support Brigade. You get a bunch of discounts on stuff, and it pays for your membership. And then you get a bunch of other cool stuff. Check it out today. Go to the survivalpodcast.com members and let's talk about our song of the day today. This was a song that when I read it on John Adams' list, I was like, I really don't know that band and I don't think I know that song. It's called Medicate and it's by a band called Theory of a Dead Band. Turned out I did know that song. Even, even the Pandora based rock that I live under, like, I don't really listen to the radio at all anymore. So this is a fairly new song, like three years old. I've heard this song. When you hear it, you're going to be like, oh, yeah, I've heard this song. This song is about America's dependence on prescription drugs and how we basically medicate ourselves to deal with everything from legitimate pain to boredom and everything in between in this country and how the pharmaceutical companies have victimized the entire country. The type of song it is isn't going to be everybody's cup of tea. I actually like it. I would not call this the style of music I normally listen to, but I like this song. I don't want to listen to music like this for hours on end, but if this were to show up in one of my Pandora lists that would be loosely associated with the style of music, I wouldn't skip it unless I wasn't in the mood. Uh, as that's the ringing endorsement. But I, I really never paid deeply attention to this song, and now that I know where they're coming from, I knew it was about drugs. But I didn't really get that it was like bashing Pfizer in the balls, man. And like, so now I have a whole new level of respect for this song. The, the, the leader of the, the group, the head man for the group, I remember his name now, uh, maybe he's dead man. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, said that when they were doing the video for this song, the producer of the video was like, yeah, I got a prescription drug problem. And like half people on the set admitted to having a prescription drug problem. That tells you there's a problem. And kind of what I want to finish with is I've been doing a lot of work with, you know, keto and low carb eating on the YouTube channel. I don't push that on the show that much. I don't want to turn into the keto hour. Um, but I've been talking a lot more about health and nutrition. We talked about it today, even with the plants that we're growing. And, uh, I, I've talked a lot about the drug companies over the year. I've talked about a lot of these things. And the reality is this does fit with the concept of proactive anarchy that basically you are not supposed to question the drug companies you're not supposed to question the government now the governments are suing the drug companies and so now it's okay but you weren't supposed to for years and you were crazy if you said there was an opiate crisis that was brought on by Pfizer and Merck you are not supposed to question the food pyramid you're not supposed to question the gas can start asking questions and start coming up with your own answers And start being proactive in your anarchy, which simply means leaving, living your life in a positive way with more freedom. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
up to a cloudy day. Dark rolls in and it starts to rain. Stare right out to the gates like walls. Time goes by and the shadows crawl. Crushing candy, crushing pills. Got no job, mom pays my bills. Texting exes, get my feels. Sweating bullets, Netflix chills. World's out there singing the blues. Twenty more dead on the evening news. Think to myself, really, what's the use? I'm just like you, I was born to lose. Why, oh why can't you just fix me? When all I want to feel numb, but the medication's all gone. Why, oh why does God hate me? When all I want to get high and forget this so-called life. I am so freaking bored, nothing to do today. I guess I'll sit around and medicate. I am so freaking bored, nothing to do today. I guess I'll sit around and To feel better than I ever will, tack that shit like a kid on Benadryl. She sit down with a hopeful smile. Hate myself, I can go for miles. They say family's all you need. Someone to trust can help you breathe. Inhale that drug, but you start to choke. You fall on the outs of an inside joke. Why, oh why can't you just fix me? When all I want is to feel numb, but the medication's all gone. Why, oh why does God? Cause I've seen enough of it, heard enough of it, felt enough of it, had enough of it. I am so freaking bored, nothing to do today. I guess I'll sit around and medicate. I am so freaking bored, nothing to do today. I guess I'll sit around and That fix like the rest of us. Always got no fear when he saves that bus. All the stars in the Hollywood Hills. Snapchat live when they pop them pills. All those flavors of the rainbow. Too bad that shit don't work though. Your friends are high right now. Your parents are high right now. That hot chick's high right now. That cop is high right now. The president's high right now. Your priest is high. Right 